Um, if you weren't here with us last week, you're kind of getting part two of the Lord's Prayer. That's where we're at in the Sermon on the Mount. And as I said last week, praying isn't something that comes natural to us unless we're in a uh, place of desperate need. Because the prayer that we utter then is kind of like this, Oh God, help me. And that's a short prayer, and it gets uttered a lot by a lot of people at various times. Uh, and so, one of the things that we have when it comes to prayer that seems to be a little bit of an issue facing us, uh, particularly in the Western Hemisphere, is that we live in a world where everything is instantly at our fingertips. Just let me give you a, a little comparison from back when I was, not even when my kids were, were little. That if we saw something in a, like, catalog that we wanted to order something out of, you would call the 1-800 number, you would place your order, and they would say, we will ship that to you in the next seven business days, but it will probably take 14 days to two months to get to your house. And you're like, awesome! And so, you know, you kind of mark it on your calendar and wait until it finally shows up, and then it would be there. One of the things that we now deal with in our world, and one of the things that pushes our buttons on wanting everything instant, is our cell phones or our computers. We want super fast download on our cell phone, for instance. We want that thing just to, to download stuff, and then when we send it, we want it to go fast. And, and when it doesn't happen, we get frustrated. We get angry. We say, stupid phone. Man, I can't believe it. And I just remember, like, if, you know, I can send a picture of um, Lorinda and I out to all of our kids, out to my brother who lives in France, to my sister who lives in Canada, to my other brothers on the West Coast. I can send that picture out to them, one push of the button, and it might take, at the most, 30 seconds. Whereas back when we were married, and I wanted to send a picture of the family to my mom and dad, I'd write a little note, I'd put it in the envelope, lick it up, put the stamp on it, mail it, seven days later they would get it. And they were happier than punch. But now, with all this stuff that's going on, we, we really get frustrated, especially even when it comes to Wi-Fi. How many people are on our Wi-Fi right now here in the church? Put your hands up real high. All right. Good luck, you're going to get bumped. All right. What we want is we want our uh, MBPs to be at a speed of about 80, which is super fast. Stuff just loads like this. And then we want the upload speed to be around 50. Now, at my house, because I live four miles up Baldwin Creek Road, the download speed at my house on our Wi-Fi, because I just checked it yesterday, is 1.8. And we're thrilled. Believe me. Our upload is like 0.7. And so, you know, when, when you're used to having something really fast and right at the tip of your fingers to go really quickly, you have, you know, this technology that's there. But the problem, I think, that happens with our technology is that it's created a new wave of impatience within us. There is a restlessness that comes that fuels our anger and our selfishness 
with technology. Simply put, we want to have this full life experience with as little effort and time and energy as it takes as possible. We just don't want to put much into it. And so we get really frustrated at times when things go. And so we want an app for everything. And so here's a new app you can get on your phone. Take a look at this one. A phone that plays music, connects to the internet, and displays HD movies. You thought it couldn't get any better. Then we added a garage door opener, TV remote, paper shredder, handheld vacuum, and scale. You thought you'd seen it all. You didn't think we could add a cheese grater, an electric air pump, a lip balm dispenser, a beard and nose hair trimmer, or a taser. You never thought you'd be performing LASIK surgery on yourself, fishing, or rotisserieing a chicken. What could we possibly add to a phone that can launch itself into suborbital spaceflight, predict the weather, detect the smell of fear, and indicate who your soulmate will be with 97% accuracy? How could it possibly get any better? Well, it has. Our latest accessory is Intercessory. A gentle electrical jolt reminds you to pray without ceasing. If you're unsure of who or what to pray for, just give it a shake and let a random apps of kindness pick for you. Or, if you just don't have time, use one of our pre-recorded prayers for all occasions. God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for this food. Thy phone. Solving life's dilemmas. One 3G prayer at a time. You know what's really funny? There's a couple of you going to the app store right now looking for that app. <laughs> I really don't think that that's what Jesus had in mind when he started talking about this prayer time with our Father. Matter of fact, in the Psalms, God said this, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in all the earth. And, and yet we, we come to this place where it's like we want to go through life quickly and get everything done as quick as we can. And we're always on our phones. We're always doing the, the very things that, that kind of can mess us up. And we want to do it in one minute. Matter of fact, they've, somebody came up with this really great thing for people who have, um, must be really super hectic life because they've created the one-minute Bible. So in the hecticness of your life, you can actually read your portion of the Bible for the day in one minute. Now, you know, the really good news is if you miss all week long, on Sunday you can catch up in seven minutes. Wow, awesome. We have all these things going on, and here's the problem with the model of the, of the prayer that Jesus gave us. The problem we face with that is we can take this prayer, the Lord's Prayer, and we can... I actually timed myself, so I know this to be factual for all you fact-checkers. Um, we can turn the Lord's Prayer into a prayer that is done in 17 seconds. And then we... we so you, if, if you're having problems, come see me. You can read your Bible in one minute and do a prayer in 17 seconds and then rush off to your day and say, thank you, Jesus, right? 
So what we're going to do this morning, and I want, what I want you to think about is how does the Lord's Prayer impact my life? What does it look like? How, how does it bring fullness to who I am? And so we're going to pray again. This time, I want you to stand up, and we're going to read the Lord's Prayer together. I want you to out loud, okay? So I don't want to be the only one doing it. Um, so let's do it together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. You guys really got that one screwed up. All right. I don't know how you messed it up. It was right up there. Have a seat. You guys all have to stay after church and practice. But nice try. Give you an A for effort. A little bit of a good try there. So, you know, we talked about this, that the first half of this prayer is focuses on God. It focuses on Him as our Father. It focuses on the hallowedness of His name. It focuses on His kingdom and on His will being done here on earth. That's, that's the first half of the focus. And, and part of it is, is that what we're asking when we start this prayer and we start talking to God is we're saying to God, I want to be a part of this big God project of your will being done here on earth. I want to be a part of that. I want to join you in the process of doing that very thing. And so it's like we're asking God, we're saying to him, I want to come and and participate with you in this. And the first half of the Lord's Prayer sets up the second half. Because what the second half of the Lord's Prayer focuses on, if I were to sum it up in one sentence, is I'm going to surrender my life to you, God. That's what the second half really sums up to be. And so it's like, God, your will be done in me, in my body, with my time, with my money, with my energy, with my words, in my relationships, with this day. And it's all, all of that is an expression of God's will being done down here. We're saying your will is being done up on in heaven for sure, but what we want to see is we want your will to be done down here on earth where we are. We want to see your kingdom start to manifest itself down here. And so then, the way that Jesus moves us through this is he does this whole thing where he now is directing this prayer as us surrendering the whole of our experience of life to God's will. That's what he's doing. And so um, we're going to pick it up on verse 11. Give us this day our daily bread. You will notice that this prayer is the whole of for man. When you take a look at this, he's, Jesus is pinpointing something with, with absolute accuracy because he's saying this is for your body, this is for your soul, and this is for your spirit. It, it's just absolutely um, unbelievable how accurate Jesus pinpoints all this stuff that we need to have in our lives And when we pray this prayer in the way that Jesus meant for us to pray it, there's really nothing further that we need to say. We don't need to continue to go on and on and on. But the way that the prayer is set up, it is set up actually for us to fill in the blanks so that we can 
we can go from having a 17-second prayer to where if we really follow what Jesus has laid out for us, the intent behind the prayer is for us to come and when we talk about our daily bread, what does that mean? And how does that, how does that look in my life? This prayer's not be, uh, been intended to be just merely repeated as a mechanical, rote fashion like some Christianized prayer wheel that you just kind of do. And unfortunately, I think in some circles of churches, it has become just that. And, and that's the problem, by the way, that I think about and I face every time we do the prayer at the beginning of the service, is that I don't want that prayer to become rote. I want you to think about what it is you're asking God to do in this service during this time when His Word is open to you to have your heart opened up to that so that you have a way of understanding what it is that God's calling us to do. Jesus is the initiator of those things, that prayer. The prayer is intended to become a guide for us. That's what the, the Lord's Prayer is. It's a guide. It's to help us to get into the place where we're really having this, this conversation with Jesus. And Paul, um, in, when he wrote his letter to the Thessalonian church, here's what he said. He said, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. You see what he's saying there? He's saying that we're to give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God. The will of God is for you to have a thankful heart. So when Jesus comes and he says, uh, give us this day our daily bread, he's talking about us showing gratitude to God for all that we have. And this is really important, because not only are we asking for our, our, our bread, but we're asking for it for today. Now, I don't know if you remember back in the Old Testament when um, Israel came out of Egypt and they were fleeing and getting away and they're headed to the promised land and they were hungry and God provided for them. Do you remember what it was called? Manna. Do you remember what God said? Pick up and use what you need for the day. It just manna fell out of the sky, and in the morning, everybody got their baskets, and they went out, and they picked up enough manna to feed them and their families for the day. Now, if you got greedy, and you thought, you know what, I, don't wanna, I want to sleep in tomorrow, I don't want to go pick manna, you know what would happen? That manna would rot overnight, and it was nasty, and you wouldn't want to eat it. And it was for that day. Now, God also talked about on the Sabbath, you're not supposed to do that. So what did he do? He created the, the, the manna that came the day before the Sabbath to have a longer expiration date on it. And it would last so you didn't have to collect on the Sabbath. Now, so when Jesus is talking about, you know, give us this day, it's what I need for my life right now, this day. That's what we're asking God for. What do I, it's what I need right now for, for my day, one day at a time. It's not give me what I need for the rest of my life. That's not what God's asking us to do. Jesus isn't asking us to get out there and do that. It's just for today. And bread symbolizes the necessity of the physical life that we have. 
It includes more than just mere bread. It's not just talking about food. It stands for all the things that we need in our physical life. So if you think about that, you think about the house you're going to live in, you think about even the car you're going to drive, you think about the clothes that you put on your body, you think about the, the water that you drink, all of that, God is saying, I want to supply this for you in an unbroken way, an immediate unbroken supply so that you have what you need. And so our prayers move right at the issue when it says, give us this day our daily bread. That the only limit in that prayer is that we are never to pray for a warehouse full of supply for a year ahead. There is no giant economic package available to us in this area of life. We are to pray for one day's supply at a time. We try to operate that way here at the church when we put a budget together. And by the way, the annual meeting's coming up on February 3rd. I know that's Super Bowl Sunday, and we do it with purpose in mind. We want you to come. We're going to enjoy a meal together. We're going to uh, talk about what we've accomplished over the year and some of the goals we have set out in the future. We will give you the budget so you can take a look at it. But the reason why we do it on Super Bowl Sunday is because that really eliminates a lot of the questions that people have. <laughs> so, I know there are people who go like, you know what, I'm always grateful to God. Because every time I have a meal, I bow my head, and I return thanks for the food. Sometimes I just think that that's, um, it's a little almost sanctimonious in the fact that it might be just another way of saying, okay, let's eat. Because we, just, we do it like, we just go like, all right, you know, uh, the kids start to eat. Hey, hey, stop that. We haven't given thanks to the, to the Lord for food yet, so put that down. Spit that out of your mouth. Let's pray. Let's be thankful to God. Lord, we're so thankful. Amen. Now, it's almost perfunctory in its, in its process. And there are a lot of people who go like, well, what's, what's the point of giving thanks for the food? What's the point of asking God for something, because he already knows what I need. We talked about this a while back um, in Matthew chapter 6, back at verse 8, just a couple weeks ago, because God, it says that God, your Father in heaven, already knows what you need before you ask him. So, why do we ask him if he knows what we need? Well, what, you know, and then maybe the other question is, what's the point of praying at all? If God already knows everything that I need, why should I ask him for anything? Well, the answer to that question really touches the central value of prayer. It's very illuminating. Obviously, prayer is not something by which we inform God of our needs or that we try to influence him. But prayer is designed to influence us. Prayer isn't for God. Prayer is for us. It gets us into that regular habit of coming to God and having a conversation with God. He knows what we need before we ask. He knows everything about us, and that's true. But prayer is something we need. God does not need to be told what to do. He doesn't need to be told what we need. We have the need 
to tell God. That's, that's what this prayer is all about. That's the whole point. Unfortunately, I've let up, met a lot of well-meaning people who are um, not very well taught or have not really looked deeply into the Bible in, in their relationship with God. And, and what they do is they want God to do all this stuff for them. And, and you're supposed to follow a formula. You're supposed to follow a pattern of prayer. And if the prayer isn't answered, it's not God's fault. It's your fault that the prayer, prayer failed. Now, do you know how ridiculous that is? Because I will tell you right now, every prayer that you pray, if, if you are in relationship with the Father through the Son, as God called us to, every prayer that you pray gets an answer. The problem is, you just don't like the answer God gave you. Right? Hey, God, I want that car. Nope. I don't think God heard me. I better try it again. I want that car in blue. Nope. And we go like, he's not listening. So when you think about that, when you go like, I've prayed and God didn't answer my prayer, that's not true. Because God always answers your prayer. It's either yes, or it's no, or it's not now. Come back again. How serious are you about this? How serious are you about what the desires of your heart really are? How serious. And so God's, God's got an answer. It just may not be the one that you want. And so um, it's really important that we pray for our physical needs. Because you know what happens when we neglect to pray for our physical needs? Inevitably, the thing that happens is there's a subtle change that occurs in our hearts. As a Christ follower, instead of coming and and talking to God and praying about the material things that we're supposed to ask Him for, and we were to take time and thank God for His daily supply of food, His shelter, His clothing, the necessities, and even the luxury of life, when we don't have that conversation, the thing that happens is we start to take a lot of stuff for granted. And gradually, we succumb to the, a, a quite foolish delusion that we actually can provide the necessities ourselves. We think we've got it all figured out. We think we've got it taken care of. And, and we begin to think in a way where we find pride that swells up inside of us because I am my own master. I am the one that is in control of my own things, my own stuff, on whether I'm going to get it or I'm going to give it away. It, what happens is, is that God can step in at any time and turn off the valve without explanation. He owes you no explanation. He doesn't owe me an explanation. He can say like, you know what? Um, you're living in prosperity and you're doing a really great thing and good things are happening in your life. But what I've noticed is that you've made a subtle shift and you've turned your face away from me. Grip. 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 And then we think that we've lost the blessing of God when God's going, no, you're missing the blessing with God. 
Now, in the book of Daniel, it vivid, vividly, vividly describes this type of thinking in the story of this great guy named Nebuchadnezzar. And he was a proud king of Babylon. And, and he was the greatest king of the greatest nation of his time. And he walked out in the evening hours one time, and he's walking on the battlements of his palace in the city of Babylon, and he takes a look around, and he said to himself, this is in the Bible, in, in Daniel, is not this great Babylon which I have made, my wisdom has built this, my ability has brought this to pass. And he reveled in all that was before him. He reveled that it was his powers, it was his inherit, inherently, it was himself, it was by his strength, it was by him alone that anything ever came to pass. And the result of that defiant assumption was of basic power that God took away from him. God cursed him so that he acted like a cow. Next thing you know, he's out in the field chewing on grass like a cow and everybody's going like the king lost his mind. And Daniel goes, no, the king didn't lose his mind. God did this because this man, this man was, was the one who thought he built his own kingdom when in fact it was God's doing. And so, we're the one who needs to thank God. We need to remember that. Now, I want you to imagine this. If you have little children, and you serve them breakfast, and you give them a, they come to the table, and they have a bowl of Fruit Loops. All right, Fruit Loops and Captain Crunch. You know, you have to eat those things at the right time. Because if you dump it in the bowl and put your milk on it, and you eat it too quick, It'll rip up the roof of your mouth, and you'll be a mess. But if you wait too long, you don't need to chew it at all. You can suck it up with a straw. So you've got this little kid who's got his bowl of Fruit Loops, and he, he goes over to the cupboard, and he pulls out this little plastic baggie. He comes back over to the table, and he takes half the Fruit Loops, and he puts it in the baggie, rolls it up, and he puts it in his pocket. And you as the dad are going like, Junior... Why did you do that? Well, Almighty Father, I'm just concerned that tomorrow you won't have what I need for food. So I am preparing for tomorrow breakfast. I, just, I don't know that you can provide for me for tomorrow. And so the dad looks at the little boy and says, now listen, here's the thing you need to understand. Worrying about tomorrow is not your job. Worrying about food for tomorrow is not your job. What you need to worry about is eating the food that I put right before you right now. Your job is to take what I have given you today, right now, and don't worry about tomorrow. I've got that. That's my job. That's what a dad's job is. And your job is to just enjoy what I've given to you right now. That's why this prayer, give us this day our daily bread. It's what I need for today. Wisdom for today. Strength for today. Love for today. Answers for today, joy for today, because tomorrow will be tomorrow. God will give me what I need for today. The second request of this prayer moves in the area of human relationships. Our conscious life, our emotion, intellect, and will. In other words, the soul of the man. Immediately, Jesus touches on the central thing 
in this area of life, in the whole area of forgiveness. Forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. Here is the need for a cleansed conscience, a sense of peace, of rest with God and man. That's the central thing in this area of life. This is the arena where the emotional clutter of our life takes a very deadly toll. Who of us has not experienced something of the painful results of imagined illness? Now, listen, I'm not saying that, the, that it's imaginary because there are physical symptoms that come from a disarrangement in our emotional life. They, people get heart palpitations, fluttering, shortness of breath, skin rashes, throbbing migraine, headaches that seem to split the skull, stammering, stuttering, nervous compulsions, and a whole host of vague, undefined reactions. Now, both Scripture and modern psychology, in its groping after the truth, agree that underneath these symptoms lurk two frightening monsters, fear and guilt. If we can find a way to slay these fiery dragons, the whole emotional atmosphere of our life will pass into peace. And it is this simple prayer that Jesus gives that we find a mighty sword in which to slay those two beasts. When we pray, forgive us, we're asking for the reality that God promised to every person who believes in Jesus Christ as their Savior. The reality that there is nothing that will ever come against us again. Matter of fact, he, he gave Paul this great understanding, and in Romans 8.1 it says, Therefore, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. Do you know what that really means? It means that as you take a look at what Jesus did on the cross, the shedding of his blood, the pouring out of his life as an offering to God on our behalf, that when we step into that relationship with Jesus Christ and the blood of Christ washes us clean, God sees us as absolutely perfect. There is never going to be a sin that God is ever going to pull back up out of our life and bring it back to us and say, now look, you're doing this sin again. You're doing it again, you're doing it again, and you're doing it again. God doesn't do that. That's what we do. We condemn each other. The enemy of our soul who wants to come and rob, kill, and destroy everything, he wants you to feel condemnation. There's a thing called false guilt. False guilt is where you've asked God to forgive you for something and you continue to live in the burden of that guilt. Because when God forgives, he forgives. Now, I also want to... This one's free, okay? There are a lot of people who say we need to forgive like God. And what they mean by that is they say, you need, you need to forgive like God forgives. You need to forgive and forget. Oh, wait a minute. God Almighty forgetting? No. He doesn't forget your sin. He makes the choice never to hold it against you again. That's what he does. He doesn't forget it. He just says, I'm choosing not to hold this against you ever again. And so that's what we're supposed to do when we forgive like God. 
we're supposed to choose not to hold it against anybody ever again. And, and I know that one of the greatest things that, that troubles most Christ followers is this whole area of false guilt, of, of living under the whole burden of fear and guilt. The fear that God's not going to love us and the guilt that comes because we don't think our sins really have been taken care of. Um, in Ephesians 4.32, Paul wrote this to the church. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ Jesus forgave you. Now, I want you to understand that this is a really highly important verse for us to understand because, and it comes back to what Jesus is saying here in this prayer, is that, you know, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Forgive us our sin as we forgive those who sin against us. So what Jesus is saying is that we have to forgive other people their sin. If we're going to experience the benefits of forgiveness in our life, from God that is predicated on our ability to forgive other people their sin that they've sinned against us. And by the way, nobody has sinned a bigger sin against you than what you have sinned against God. I want you to get that. If you get nothing else, get this. There is nobody that sins bigger against you than the sin that you have sinned against God. Your sin against God actually brings death if it's not under the blood of Christ. And everybody who walks in the fullness of Jesus is under the blood of Christ. Therefore, that sin doesn't hold any power over you anymore. And neither should somebody else's sin ever hold any power over you ever again. I forgive, and so I'm not going to use that sin against you ever again. Matter of fact, um, Paul said at the beginning of Ephesians, In him, that's Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. You see that? The redemption, the forgiveness, it's all through the blood of Jesus. And so what we want to do is is understand that it's the grace that we hand on to other people. So when we come thanking him for what he did on the cross and has already done taking away our awful burden of sin, he's telling us now to, to extend that grace to other people, because this forgiveness keeps, uh, um, keeps us enjoying unbroken fellowship with the Father and with the Son, and if we do what Jesus says to forgive our debtors, then we have continual fellowship with them as well. The secret of emotional quietness and rest is in our ability to give forgiveness and receive forgiveness. This is such a big thing that Jesus, even in the Sermon on the Mount, back in chapter 5, he said, if you're making a sacrifice, if you're giving to God something and, and at the altar, you remember that you have something against your brother or your brother has something against you, leave your time of worship and go and be reconciled. Then come back and worship me. Dealing with the sin issue with other people is paramount in our walk with other people. And so it's like we have to be able to express that to people, the forgiveness of sin. And by the way, when you say, I can't forgive, 
then the truth is, is that you've not really experienced the fullness of God's grace of forgiveness in your own life. When you refuse, when you say, I cannot forgive this person, what you're really saying to them or to whoever you're talking to is, you know what? It's not that I can't, it's that I refuse to. Because there isn't a single sin on this planet that you can't forgive. Because there isn't a single sin that anybody's ever committed against God that he won't forgive. This really great thinking guy, Neil Planting, he wrote this, just a little something. Recalling and confessing our sin is like taking out the garbage. Once is not enough. And people sometimes wonder, how often do I confess my sin? The simple answer to that is, how often do you sin? One of the things that happens in this process of us um, falling into sin is that in order for us to really participate in sinful behavior, we, we've, we're basically saying to God, don't look at me. I heard a story about a grandma who was taking care of her granddaughter, and she let her granddaughter go outside in the backyard to play, and grandma was in the house, and she was reading her book. But her back was to the window because she wanted the natural light as she was reading the book. And little did she know, the little Priscilla, playing out in the backyard, found the garden hose and turned it on and made a big mud puddle in a big muddy mess. And, of course, Grandma figured something must be up, and so she turned around and she found the little girl. So we, Priscilla got cleaned up and the, all the mess taken away, and Grandma then turned her chair around so she could look out the window. And the little granddaughter wanted to go and play in the mud badly, make more muddy mess. And she would say to her Grandma, Grandma, don't look at me. Grandma would close her eyes and turn her head. Now, Grandma, don't you look at me. And she'd sneak over to the mud puddle right then. She'd look back and Grandma would have her eyes open. Grandma, you're not supposed to look at me. That is kind of the same response we have when we come to God. We know when we're doing something wrong. We know our conscience is aware of the things that we're doing. And this little tender soul of a little child shows us the necessity. It, it, it is to us what we must unobserve in our wrong. The real sinner's prayer is this. Don't look at me, God. I want to indulge in my temper. I want to ignore the poor. I want to indulge in this sinful appetite. I want to give less than my best at work. I want to deceive this person. I want to vent on this email. I want to self-promote. Don't look at me, God. Doing wrong requires we put God out of our mind. So, and that happens 
quite a bit. So much so that we probably don't, don't even notice it when we do it. It's, uh, psycholog it, it's psychologically impossible for us to have a tender heart to God and a hard heart towards other. I'll tell you a prayer I bet no one has ever prayed, not in this room anyway. God, help me to hold this grudge against my coworker with bitterness and superiority. Anytime we're holding a grudge or indulging in bitterness, we have to say to God, don't look at me, God. You can't embrace God's forgiveness for myself and unforgiveness towards another person. You can't do it at the same time. Receiving and offering forgiveness are inseparably tied together. It's not just that they should be, they simply are. So now we move to the third area of prayer, and it's in the realm of the Spirit. Uh, lead us not into temptation. Now, again, this is a thing where we're asking God to guide us because sometimes the question comes when you take a look at this, you think to yourself, can God lead me into temptation? Is God leading me into temptation? The Bible tells us that the, our Father in heaven never tempts anyone to sin. And so it's not that it's Jesus is saying, ask God not to take you into temptation. But what he's asking you, it, what we're asking God is to keep me from falling into my worst self, to give me strength not to fall into the destructive habits of, and patterns that I know that I, I'll get into on my own. I saw another prayer not long ago that's probably useful for me because it expresses the amount of help I need personally when it comes to temptation. And it goes something like this. Dear God, so far I've done all right. I haven't gossiped. I haven't lost my temper. Haven't been greedy, grumpy, nasty, selfish, or overindulgent. I'm really glad about that. But in a few minutes, God, I'm going to get out of bed. And from then on, I'm going to need a lot more help. Thank you. Amen. Here's the truth. Somebody's going to be leading you. You have to decide who that somebody is. If you lead yourself, you're going to lead yourself right into a big old mess. But if you let God lead you, he will take you away from temptation. This little prayer, it kind of made me think. And I know that this is just a, a tiny, trivial little moment in, in the snapshot of time, but how often in the moments of my day do I not pray, God, deliver me from this temptation or not to trust you? How often do I not pray, God, deliver me from this anger? How often do I not pray, God, deliver me from this fear? How often do I not pray, God, deliver me from this folly? Or how often do I not pray, God, guide me and show me where to go? You lead me. It's just simple. And... and he says, if you just ask me, I will lead you. I will deliver you. God, lead me not into temptation and deliver me from evil. Now, if you had your Bibles and you were in Matthew chapter 6, at verse 
13, you will notice that that's the end of the prayer. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This is the tendency that Jesus has. He does this all all the time. He ends his material on either a really hard or jarring kind of note. And and we'll see this at the Sermon uh, on the Mount. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he gives this, he says, the people who listen to what I have just said, you're either a wise man who builds your house on the rock, or you're a foolish man who builds your house down on the sand at the beach. Boom, drops the mic and walks off, and everybody's like, where's the rest of it? Do you remember when he told the story about the um, prodigal son? All right. So he tells the story. The son comes back, blah, blah, blah. We're having this great big party. He forgives, the father forgives the son. And the older brother is acting like a whiny, pouty little brother. And he refuses to go in to the celebration of his, his brother who squandered everything. And so the father walks out and he says to, his, bro, to the, his oldest son, he says, son, we're celebrating the return of your brother. Come and join the party. This is the parable Jesus says. Come and join the party. Boom! Drops the mic and walks off. And everybody's like, there's got to be more. Did they live happily ever after? Because he doesn't finish it. And so that's what Jesus actually does with this this prayer. He just drops it and he says, you know, but deliver us from evil. And we're all going like... And the human heart. You know why, do you know why Jesus did that? Because it makes you remember it better. Because you feel like it's incomplete and you're going like, oh, I remember that. It's not finished. So what happened really very early on as the church gathered together and they started to incorporate this prayer into their lives, they added a little something on the end. And it goes like, you're going to recognize this right away. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And everybody's going like, yeah, we did it. We're done. We finished the prayer. Woo. And then we can just kind of, you know, go off on the rest of our day. You know, sometimes, I don't know if it, it, it's ever happened to you. It's never happened to me. I've never been in the conversation with somebody else, and they're having a conversation with me, and they're kind of going like, yeah, and so, you know, um, I went down, and I, was, um, I tied a fly on, and I was fishing, and that fly was just magnificent. And so it was um, kind of really fun, and then I just kind of, and they walk, leaving you hanging in the middle of a conversation. You wouldn't do that to somebody. You don't want somebody to do that to you. God doesn't want us to do that to him. Okay? And so, this, your kingdom come, or your, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory. That's the way we close this thing off. That's how we close the prayer. So, here's kind of how our takeaway is going to be for this. This is what I want you to do for the next week. Every day of the week, I want you at some point in your day to stop and say the Lord's Prayer. But see if you can expand it beyond 17 seconds. 
See if you can make this. See if you can start to fill in between the lines. Because that's why Jesus gave us this prayer. It's so that we can fill in between the lines. Our Father, who art in heaven, fill in the lines. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Fill in the lines. Give us this day our daily bread. Fill in the gap. And so that's what I, I want us to do over the next week. But it's, it's not something I want you to keep to yourself. I want you at least two times during your week to tell somebody close to you how it's going. Hey, I prayed the prayer almost every day and it's really changing my heart. I prayed the prayer every day and nothing's changed. That's okay. Be honest. So here's how we're going to finish off. You know, I usually go like, God, this has been a great time. Thanks, amen, that kind of thing. You're going to stand with me. And we're going to do the Lord's Prayer again. We started with it, but we were left hanging. This time, we're going to finish it. And listen, can you get it together this time? Let's, let's try, okay? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.